Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Be Good, brought to you by BVNH Consulting, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science and related science in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder and CEO of BVNH Consulting. I am delighted to be introducing our guest today, William Van Hippel. Bill uh, grew up in Alaska, got his uh, BA at Yale and his PhD at the University of Michigan, and then taught for uh, a dozen of years at Ohio State University before finding his way to Australia, where he is a professor of psychology at the University of Queensland. He has published more than 100 articles, chapters, and edited books in social psychology. And his research has been featured in a lot of journals, the New York Times, USA Today, The Economist, the BBC, in France, Le Monde, which is a very well-known newspaper, El Mundo, Der Spiegel, and The Australian. Bill had just published a wonderful book, The Social Leap, The New Evolutionary Science of Who We Are and What Makes Us Happy. Bill, welcome to our uh, Be Good podcast. Thank you, Eric. It's delighted to be here. So, Bill, uh, thank you so much for joining uh, us today for this uh, new episode of Be Good. We are uh, very excited to have you uh, join uh, us to share some of your insight, especially regarding your new book, The Social Leap, that I find really fascinating. Uh, Bill, maybe we could start uh, there. You have received your PhD from the University of Michigan. Can you tell us about how you became to be interested in evolutionary psychology? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I first began graduate school, when I arrived to the University of Michigan in 1985, I didn't know that evolutionary psychology was even a thing. I'd never heard of it. And so I happened to be at the beginning of the year picnic for grad for brand new graduate students and all the academics show up and the older graduate students. And at that picnic, I met David Buss. And he had just arrived as a new professor from Harvard, where he had already been teaching for five or 10 years. And then we had stolen him away at Michigan. And he told me about the work he does. He does, And I thought that was fascinating. I thought it's not quite what I want to do right now, in part because it's also some, there's lots of groups of people who regard it as somewhat politically incorrect. <clears throat> Typically something of a misunderstanding of the goals and, and the way they do their work. But <clears throat> sorry, but nonetheless, they often don't like the work. So I thought, well, let me pursue my other interests for now. But someday down the road, I would love to return to this problem. And so I would say for about 20 years, I pursued mostly research in stereotyping and prejudice, but lots of other areas. But every time I got to the end of a project, I was a little bit dissatisfied because we, we don't ask questions about where these things originally come from. We ask questions like, well, um, why do you do that? And the answer might be, it makes me happy. But then we don't say, well, why does it make you happy? And I started to feel that if I really want to understand people's social psychology, how they interact with others, why they feel the way they do, I need to understand more about where we came from in order to get a handle on this particular problem. So after about 20 years of social psychology, I returned to these original interests from my conversation with David Buss so many years ago and began conducting evolutionary research as well. Could you share uh, with us any mentors, um, in addition to the first one that you just uh, mentioned, that had a particularly strong influence on you? Do you have any uh, researcher or the people who have played an influential role in your uh, professional career? Uh, there's probably two people, or maybe three, I would say, who, who've been enormously influential and helpful to me as I became an evolutionary psychologist. Um, the first is Robert Trivers, and I had the good fortune of meeting Trivers at a very small conference in around the year 2000, so about 20 years ago, uh, that was on self-deception. And I was very lucky to get invited. 
it almost seems like it might have been a mistake because I had hardly done any work on the topic. But I met Trevor's at that conference and we got along famously. And then I started um, chatting with him, keeping up correspondences. He would ask me questions or I would ask him questions. And then he invited me to go on sabbatical with him um, to the VICO, Wissenschaftskolleg in Berlin, uh, where we I had a wonderful time working with him and I learned an enormous amount. And sometimes he had to keep telling me the same thing over and over because, for example, as psychologists, we think about emotional states as important end states. as That's what matters. But emotional states are only part of the way to what matters. You need to know, well, what was evolution's goal in giving you that emotional state and what behavior or what benefit might come from it? So it took him for a while to beat that through my thick skull that the emotions are only part of the story and that we need to keep going. And then probably the, the other most important person in this transition is my colleague here at UQ, Thomas Sudendorf. And Sudendorf works on, he's an evolutionary developmental psychologist. So he's very interested in chimpanzees and humans and, and the difference between us. But he also does a lot of work looking back at the various ancestral species, what we call hominins, um, descendants of our common ancestors with chimpanzees that slowly worked their way evolutionarily toward us. And Thomas knows an enormous amount about it. And I knew almost nothing when I arrived here. So the first thing I did was I grabbed him and I said, let's have a joint evolutionary lab group. And he said, sure, that'd be good fun. And so every fortnight we'd read a paper. And in the beginning, I had nothing but stupidity to say about it. And he would say, no, 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 think about it this way. And slowly over time, it started to seep in and I started to think in that way. And then we had the good fortune that various anthropologists and archaeologists and biologists joined the group on and off, depending on what career stage they're in. And I've learned an enormous amount about human evolution from these very kind people who you know, gave me books to read and had conversations with me because it was never part of my formal training, but it was something that I was desperately wanting to do. Sounds great. Uh, is there a, one experiment that stand out in influencing your thinking? Or several, maybe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this, I have lots of favorites. And I, it's not so much the experiments, but, the, but Trevor's ideas. He was one of my heroes, still is. And I think parental investment model is a really good example. So in that, um, in that paper, which is, he wrote as a graduate student, so it just shows you know, the power of his thinking. He, he pointed out that whichever of the two sexes puts a greater investment into parenting the offspring that will be the choosier sex because the other sex is going to compete for their investment. And I had never thought about it that way before. And it explains the entire animal kingdom. This is not a human thing. It's just an animal thing. If both parents work hard and, and raise the child together, then they're busy choosing each other. If one parent puts in all the effort and the other parent, all it does is contribute, you know, the gametes, then that the, the parent that's only contributing a gamete has to compete and demonstrate that it's the best possible choice. And so humans lie somewhere in between there. You know, human females put in more effort in child rearing than human males, not biologically way more effort. But even once a child's born, if you especially if you look at hunter-gatherer families, human females are putting in much more effort than human males. And that suggests that on average, human males are going to compete for female attention. And on average, human females are going to be very choosy. And it's such an elegant idea. It's one of my favorite kinds where in retrospect, I go, of course, that must be true. And I, I berate myself for not having had it myself, but it never occurred to me until it, somebody mentions it. Uh, time now to start talking about your book. And first, Bill, um, as I have mentioned, this new book uh, was just recently released. Can you tell us more about the inspiration behind writing it? How did the idea for the book come to you? Well, it came over a very long period of time as I started to think more and more about, well, what are the actual details of our evolution since we separated from our chimp cousins? What action, What actually happened? Why did we leave the trees and move to the savannah? What happened when we got to the savannah? What were the consequences? And the more I began reading on this topic, the more I realized that there were a couple of really big evolutionary transitions. Leaving the trees is a good example. Becoming bipedal is another one that have enormous consequences. And I believe leave those consequences still shape our mind. They can still lead us to new hypotheses about human behavior. So as I walked through, you know, as I read through these 
bazillion articles and learned about this entire timeline, each time I learned about something new as a social psychologist, I would say, wait a minute, that could explain why we do X. And so that's why I really wanted to write the book, because what I'd realized is that I was doing it in pieces. I had a paper on innovation that was looking at one aspect of the problem. I had a paper on leadership looking at another aspect of the problem, but I never sat down and thought about the whole problem all at once. And so as out of pure luck and coincidence, uh, a literary agent heard a podcast I gave and she contacted me and asked me if I'd like to write a book. I said, great timing. I would love to write a book. I don't know how to do it, though. I don't know how to propose it. And she goes, don't worry, I'll take care of all that. And so the two of us worked together. And, and that's what be, that's where the book came from. Um, what why do you think human evolution is so important to understand our current behavior? So I think the reason it's so important is that if you look at our people understand very readily that our physiology, our anatomy evolved. And so they can see that we have hands that are very similar to a chimpanzee's hands, but our feet are very different. And so a chimp uses its feet to climb trees all day and we use our feet to walk on the ground. And so it's not hard to imagine how evolution shifted our weight and our legs and made the muscles stronger and made our feet flat. So they're more robust for walking long distances, but pretty useless for climbing trees. That all makes sense to people. But what people tend to forget is that our attitude have to fit our physiology. They have to match our anatomy and what we're capable of doing. And so if I have a desire to fly, you could see that would be harmful for our ancestors who keep hopping out of trees and hoping to fly. Um, that desire doesn't help. And if I have a desire to eat feces, that's a great thing if you're a dung beetle, but it's a terrible thing if you're a human because it'll make us very sick. And so our attitudes have to match our proclivities or, or our abilities, I'm sorry. And so From my perspective, that's one of the most interesting things about evolution. How does evolution give us the attitudes that will then make us a success? And that's what pushed me to want to write this book and what pushed me to study these kinds of problems as a social psychologist. There is a, a question which is maybe about methodology or methods. How do we know what our ancestors thought and did? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's really hard. And what we do, what I do, is I leverage the hard work of a lot of really fabulous evolutionary scholars who've done enormous amounts of work trying to answer these questions. So let me give you one example. Um, if we look at, at Oldowan tools, those are developed about two and a half million years ago. We're not quite sure who invented them, maybe Homo habilis. And so we'll just say that for sake of argument, that's where they come from. Well, they're very simple tools, and they just show a little bit of sharpening. And then there, otherwise there are rocks. So you could use that rock to do some cutting. We have never, in all the old wand tools we've ever found, we've never found a case where they're a great distance from where they were quarried and made. So you can look at the rock, you can see where the bedrock, where it came from, or the loose lying stones where it would have come from because the geology matches and the, and the chemistry matches and it's a hundred yards away or it's maybe as much as half a mile away, but it's never a great distance. Now we get to Acheulean tools, which are about 1.7 million years ago. They were first developed by our Homo erectus ancestors who, for lots of reasons, we know are much more clever than our Homo habilis ancestors. Well, now for the first time, we start to see these tools at great distances from where they're acquired and made. And what that immediately tells us is that Homo erectus is capable of anticipating unfelt needs. They made this tool. They used it. Well, they don't need it anymore. They've now dismembered the, the, the animal that they killed or whatever it was that they were using it for. If they were like a chimpanzee is today or if they were like Homo habilis, they should throw it away because they can't imagine unfelt needs. But the fact that they didn't throw it away, that they carried it with them great distances showed that they could think about tomorrow and they could think about tomorrow, they'll probably have a recurring need for the tool that they no longer need today. And that's an enormous mental leap that uh, chimpanzees are not capable of. And to the best of our knowledge, no animal on this planet was capable of prior to Homo erectus. So we have to rely on these very small tidbits that we don't have much. But when we find something like that, well, it's worth its weight in gold. Before going into the details of the book, what would you most like your readers to take away from this book? Well, I think what I would most like them to take away is that if they look at our evolutionary history, it can give us interesting and valuable hypotheses for understanding how we are today. And so a lot of things can seem like a mystery. Why does this make us happy and not that? Why am I not happy when I'm well-fed and I'll have all these other benefits? Um, Why do I get so upset if people I don't even care about reject me and, and tell me they don't like me or don't like my work or something like that? There's a lot of seemingly odd 
human behaviors. And they almost without exception make perfect sense once we consider our evolutionary history and what the costs and benefits would have been for our ancestors who encountered similar things. Okay, so now uh, time to go into uh, the detail. Uh, the first part of your book is about how we became who we are. Could you start by describing uh, the savanna hypothesis and the role of the tectonic activity in our evolution? Sure, sure. So about 30 some million years ago, the uh, continent of Africa started to split and, and pull apart. And so you've got the Somali plate, which is in the lower right, and it started to tear off and move to the right, south and, south and east. And you've got the rest of Africa, the brunt of it, which is moving off um, up to the north and west. And what, as a consequence of this tearing of the plate, and that presumably what's causing that are occurrence underneath the um, actual continental shelf of magma that's just flowing very powerfully, but very slowly. And that's caused all the continental drift throughout the history of our planet. Well, in tearing apart the current continent of Africa, what's being developed is the Great African Rift Valley, which runs up from the Red Sea down to the coast of Mozambique. And so that... Um, that rift valley created a separation between what used to be just contiguous rainforest, uh, you know, a, a massive stretch of jungle. And for reasons that elude me, even though I've tried to read the geology papers, I don't understand them very well. What's on the east side, it's elevating the land to a plateau that's often as high as a mile in the air. So Ethiopia, Somalia, uh, Tanzania, and Kenya, large um sections of those countries have slowly elevated over the last 30 million years till they're quite higher than the rest of the continent, as much as a mile in the air. As a consequence, you get these very local climate changes whereby it starts to cool off and dry out. And so the forest disappears on the right side of the Rift Valley as in, and gets slowly replaced by savanna. By 6 million years ago, there was essentially no large contiguous rainforest left on the east side of the Rift Valley. So those ancestors are those chimpanzees or chimp-like creatures who happen to be on the east side of the Rift Valley now have run out of trees. Those in the west can stay in the trees and continue to do what made them successful for the last five or so million years. But those on the right need to find a new way to make a living because suddenly for the first time in their history, they're thrust on the ground, which is a very hostile climate for a chimpanzee or a chimp-like creature. And that's the beginnings of, of our evolutionary story. My, my guess is that we got awfully lucky because I would imagine if you replayed that story 100 times, 90 plus times, you're going to just end up with extinct apes or maybe these very scared little critters that live around the edge of the savanna. But through a real lucky sequence of events, it led directly to us a mere six million years later. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, the, can you tell us more about this savanna hypothesis? What does it mean? What were the key challenges for our uh, ancestor? And uh, maybe what were the different strategy to deal with these uh, challenges? Yeah, great question. So the one thing that we can do today is we can look at the single group of chimpanzees who tend to live in a savanna on occasion. They live in Senegal and they, they have forest, but they often go out into the savanna. And when they do, they do some interesting things. They, they're in larger groups than chimpanzees typically travel in, which makes sense because you're looking out for predators. They um, often sleep in caves, which is a, a prudent thing to do too because it gives you shade and it's something that our human ancestors probably did. They share more nicely with each other. Chimpanzees, as a rule, don't share very well. They don't either, but they share better than other chimpanzees who live in the forest. And they even take sticks, chew the ends of them to make spears, and spear uh, monkeys that get that hide in the hollows of trees in order to hunt for them. So they've got a lot of really interesting behaviors that might have been what our ancestors first started to do. Now, probably more importantly, they also tend to try to keep the trees in sight. And if, if a if a threatening predator comes along, they scatter and try to climb up the tree as quickly as they can. And I suspect that's what our ancestors did for millions of years. They, they tried to be along the edges of the savanna, somewhere near a tree where they could see it. And whenever an important predator came along, they, they would just run as fast as they could and, and hope for the best. Because chimpanzees are enormously effective in the canopy. They're so fast and so dangerous that really nothing can attack them there, not even leopards who are superb tree climbers. But now you put them on the savanna, they've got to deal with leopards, they've got to deal with 
with lions, which aren't even relevant to their lives in the trees. And they also had to deal with saber-toothed cats, which existed um, in East Africa at that time. So they've got these enormously powerful predators and hyenas as well, big dogs as well as big cats. They're suddenly a threat to them that had never been a threat in the past. And they're also smaller, so they're not nearly as fast. They're not strong enough to directly confront those predators. And then to make matters all the worse, the foods that they used to eat in the trees, the, the budding leaves and the fruits and the nuts, well, those have disappeared with the rainforest. And so they have to somehow find new things to eat. So it's just this terrible situation for them of new predators and not as much food that they once had. And so I'm sure that the population diminished dramatically. But over time, something very interesting happened. And we can talk about why if you'd like. And that is within about 3 million years after leaving the trees, they became bipedal. And they now are standing upright. So a chimpanzee can't lock its hips and it can't lock its knees. And so we assume that our common ancestor with them couldn't either. But by the time we get to Australopithecines, they now can lock hips and knees and they can stand upright. Now, that seems somewhat trivial, except for the fact that it allows the invention of what we regard as the most important creation in military history, which is the capacity to kill at a distance. And the reason that it allows that is bipedalism frees up the waist and hips, it makes the musculature more lateral, and now the animal can throw very well. Whereas a, a chimpanzee, even though very strong, throws very poorly, typically with two hands and inaccurately. Human beings, even young human beings, can throw very accurately with one hand and very hard. And so now, three million years after being thrust onto the savanna by the receding rainforest, we now have an animal that's capable of defending itself without just running away and hoping that it's faster than the one next to it by pelting stones at the predator that might be coming at it. But of course, one Australopithecines, which is barely larger than a chimp, throwing rocks at a leopard or a hyena or a lion is going to end up in the belly of a slightly bruised animal. But a lot of Australopithecines throwing rocks at a hyena or a lion, well, they have the potential to actually drive it away. And so that, that bipedalism had the unintended consequence of making them more effective throwers. And then once they became more effective throwers, there was enormous pressure on their psychology to change for them to start to become more cooperative. Because at some point when they're crossing the savanna, it would have occurred to them, if we just throw rocks at this animal, we can drive it away. And then instead of all of us running and hoping that we're not the one who gets eaten, nobody gets eaten at all. And so that kind of cooperation would have been hard to develop. But once the penny dropped, once they figured that out, it changed everything. Uh, what proof do we have regarding this collective uh, action? So we don't know when it happened at all. It's my pure conjecture that it happened with Australopithecines. We have no evidence of when. The, um, we, don't so, we don't see much sign of throwing until way later, until we're Homo sapiens, because, of course, it's hard to find evidence for an animal that could throw. But when we look at the skeletal structure of an Australopithecines, its elbow and shoulder and wrist make it capable of throwing in a way that we can look at a chimp and see that it can't. So we, at least we know that's possible. That's number one. Number two, we can look at chimpanzees and see, for example, that they have brown sclera to their eyes, and that hides the direction of their gaze from other members of their group. Now, they're very clever animals. They can tell when I look over there that I can see something that maybe they can't see from their angle, so they could come over and see what Bill's looking at. But I hide that information if I'm a chimp by making my eyes entirely brown. As humans, our sclera have gone white, so I can advertise the direction of my gaze, which means that we're fundamentally cooperative. And we have been for so long that whenever I look over there, I want you to know, because you're, if it's a threat, you're going to help me deal with it. And if it's an opportunity, you're going to help me get it. So we know that there's a strong shift in cooperativeness between us and chimps, but we don't know when it happened. So then I look at the evidence and I say, well, when did our... The, the size of our cranium really take off. Well, it took off at around the point of Australopithecine. So we go three million years after leaving the rainforest, we've gained 70 grams of brain power from a chimpanzee. In the next three million years, we tripled, we quadrupled the size of our brain. And so it went from very flat to suddenly a very steep increase. There's some genetic reasons why that might be, but it comes down to the question, well, why would why the sudden increase in brain power? If brain makes you more effective, why don't chimps have bigger brains? Why don't zebras have bigger brains? And of course, the answer is that you have to pay the rent on it. You, the bigger brain has to bring you a bigger benefit in calories that you can consume so you can pay for that metabolic cost. And once they started, once our ancestors started working in groups and started to be able to hunt in groups like that and protect themselves, well, brains would have enabled it and then more brain would make you more effective at it. You could move from everybody throwing rocks at once to divisions 
division of labor. You go on that side, I'll go on this side, planning for the future, all of these kinds of things. And so from my perspective, you're not going to get there until you start to cooperate. And so that's why I believe that it happened at Australopithecines, because that's also exactly when our brain power began to take off. But it's pure speculation. Could you uh, tell us what you consider are the big key uh, steps in our evolution, especially uh, maybe fire on uh, agriculture? Yeah, so the first big one, of course, is bipedalism, because that's what enabled the throwing, and that's what got us to start cooperating. Once we started cooperating, I think the next big step is probably the making of tools. Now, we have some evidence for possible tools as old as three and a half million years ago, which would mean even Australopithecines might have been sharpening rocks. And of course, lots of other animals use tools. Chimpanzees will pick up a rock and use it to break a nut. But not till we get to older one tools are we actively taking a rock and reshaping it to make it useful for us. And not till we get to Acheulean tools of Homo erectus are we now have this incredibly effective tool that's, that's a, um, It's uh, bifacial. It's really good for cutting open carcasses. It can break into bones where you can allow you to access the marrow. It can do all sorts of things for us as humans that we're not big enough and strong enough to do. And so I would say that somewhere between Australopithecines and um, Homo erectus, we shifted onto this straight cognitive pathway where we're no longer surviving by brawn. It comes, it comes down to brain. And I regard it as a social cognitive pathway because it's cooperation and it's braininess that gets us there. And then what are the big changes? Well, as you point out, fire is huge. And Richard Rangham has argued that fire is as old as Homo erectus because fire allows you to extract more nutrients from your food. It allows you to eat foods that are otherwise almost indigestible. And what we see with Homo erectus for the first time is the rib cage is flat like ours. If we look at older species or chimpanzees, the rib cage sticks out, which tells you there's a lot of gut in there trying to digest some very difficult food to digest. By Homo erectus, we don't have that anymore. We've got flat ribs, so a small gut and a bigger, much bigger brain. Now, their brain is only 960 grams, it's still a good chimpanzee brain smaller than ours, but it's a big difference from where it used to be, like 450 grams at Australopithecines. And what Rangham's argued is that fire is, was the key for enabling that. I think he's right. And so somewhere over a million years ago, we learned to control fire, even if we didn't learn to make it right away, we learned to keep it going. That was an enormously important one. And then as you point out, Agriculture would be the last one, really, the last biggie, because that's what led to cities and specialization and all those things. The downside of agriculture is that in contrast to all the other inventions, which would have immediately helped the person who invented it, life got worse in the early stages of agriculture because the food sources were less they were they were had less variability and so suddenly we're eating these very high cereal diets and we're not getting the kind of meats and nuts and all the things that our ancestors used to get and so we actually became physically shorter once we invented agriculture our lives got shorter but the carrying capacity of the land was greater and so even though any one agriculturalist in the early days was a less healthy specimen than a hunter gatherer The, they became much larger groups, and so they displaced hunter-gatherers anyway. And now you and I benefit enormously from agriculture having led to cities, having led to invention, having led to specialization, and all the things that allow us to talk from thousands of miles apart. There is something which is uh, at the heart of your book. It's even the title of the, the book. Uh, you describe our move from the rainforest to the savanna as the social leap. Could you Tell us what you mean by social leap. Yeah, that's a great question. So for me, even though the rainforest, the leap from the rainforest to the savannah is not really a leap, right? The trees are leaving us. We're not hopping out of them. But, it, but you can think of it as a leap. And metaphorically, what made that leap successful? Well, the answer is that we learned to, we learned to bond together socially. And so it was this, I, I think that until we started cooperating and um, as Australopithecines, we were these low-level Um, unimportant bottom of the food chain animals that were scurrying around and doing our best to avoid the attention of the big predators. And this was the, you know, if you think about it in, in the long term, it's a very sad state of affairs because we went from being the apex predator in the rainforest, these chimp-like animals who can, who are unstoppable in the canopy because they're so fast and so fierce and so smart to being kind of near the bottom of the food chain where any predator can eat us. Well, once we started to cooperate, we put ourselves back on track to the top of the food chain that we were before. And in fact, we, we for the first time in 
the history of any animal, we now have the capacity to turn any predator into our prey, any other animal, no matter how large it is, no matter how fierce it is, no matter how large the group it travels in, they're still, we can still predate on that animal by virtue of our capacity to work together, to have division of labor, to plan for the future, to do those kinds of things that no other animal could do. So even you know, it's not a good thing, but think about the fact that humans could kill whales and live off whale meat. Well, a whale is an enormous animal out in its own element. A human being is not in its element when it's at sea, and yet we're so effective as hunters, we could go to sea and kill these enormous animals, even with the primitive tools that we would have had prior to the invention of modern weaponry. Maybe it's time to talk about uh, what you call leveraging the past to understand uh, the present. You highlight, in fact, two key uh, dimensions. First one is what you call homo socialis. So what do you mean by that? So this comes back to our cooperative nature and, and the fact that sociality became so important to us. So when we talk about humans, we talk about them being hypersocial and we talk about them... Um, so much enjoying social socializing, wanting to be in groups of other people, being, you know, even the extroverts among us don't want to spend their days alone. They want to spend their days with smaller numbers of people. And even the most extroverted among us it, who want some alone time don't want to spend all day alone. They want to have time with close friends, time with their partner, and then maybe some time just to themselves. So all humans evolved the need to be with other humans. We're fundamentally gregarious. And so once we understand our past and we understand the fact that in order to survive, when we left the savannah, we had to learn to cooperate and work together. Well, then it makes perfect sense that we should want to do that. So if we look at chimpanzees, when they go off to go foraging, they prefer to go on their own. Even though they want to come home to their group at the end of the day, they want to forage by themselves. Human beings almost never want to forage on our own because I think, gee, if I can get Eric to go out with me, he'll keep one eye out in one direction. I'll keep an eye in the other direction and we'll be more successful in our hunt. And then we'll share the proceeds of our hunt. And chimpanzees can't manage that. They can't plan to go out together. They don't want to particularly be together. And worse yet, when they do cooperate, whoever's the more dominant chimp will take all the proceeds and won't share because it doesn't understand that that just drives the other chimp away and makes it not want to help. So this, these big changes in our, in our prior environment led to big changes in the way we are today. Now, most of those changes are for the good, but some of them seem a little silly. Like if I get ostracized on Twitter, there are a bunch of people I don't even know. And now they hate something that I tweeted or they hate my book and they make fun of me. Why would I even care that people I don't know are angry at me or think I'm stupid or whatever? Well, unfortunately, in the environment in which we evolved, there was nobody that we didn't know. We always lived in these small groups. And so if my small group decides that Bill is a negative loss, he's consuming more calories than he's bringing in, well, they're going to leave Bill behind. Bill's no longer useful to have around. They're either going to kill me or they're, I'll wake up one morning and they've left. I'm, they're gone. And so our ancestors who were didn't mind being ostracized, who didn't mind being left behind, well, they didn't end up as our ancestors because it's too hard to survive alone as a you know, bipedal organism as this sort of naked ape on the savanna. And as a consequence, we all have these deep needs to please other people. We feel terrible when we've been rejected or ostracized. Even if the people who rejected or ostracized us, we don't even know them personally, don't care about them. So we've got these weird leftover emotions, which are unfortunate. But by and large, of course, it moved us in a direction that made us enormously effective. Could you describe what you call the social brain hypothesis? You mentioned that from this perspective, the great discoveries of humankind are just an evolutionary byproduct of our ancestors' effort to persuade others. Could you tell us more? Sure. Yeah, that's a great example. So according to the social brain hypothesis, the reason that, that primates' brains are so large and the reason human brains are so large in particular is because of the social pressures and social opportunities. And so it links tightly to what we were talking about earlier, where our brain starts to take off in size once we became more cooperative than the chimpanzees were. And so according to the social brain hypothesis, the the challenges of social living. So remember, 
you have to keep in mind that there's no police, there's no government, there's no laws other than what you and I agree, and we're all off on our own. And so if you and I go hunting together and I decide, you know what, I don't really like this era character, nobody's around, I can hit you on the head with a big stick and, and nobody will ever know, nobody would ever be able to prove it. I come back and they go, where's Eric? And I go, he got eaten by a lion, he saved my life, he's such a lovely guy, and now we all thank you, but we leave you conked on the head and buried in the pit where I left you. And so it's living a life in, in that time is very different from living a life now where you had to get by in your wits in those days. You had to make sure that you knew who your allies were, you had to make sure that your allies were strong enough so that your enemies couldn't take it out on you, and you had to navigate these complex social relationships that were changing all the time. You know, you might fall in love with the same girl as somebody else in your group. How do you manage who's going to end up getting to be with her if either of you two do? And how do you manage the rivalries that then get formed and the jealousies and the anger? All of that is enormously complex. And so the notion is that these are the pressures that made us so smart. Now, a lot of people think they look at human behavior and say, gosh, it's so complicated. The things that we make, like these kayaks that the Inuit can make up north without any modern tools. It's so complicated, the things that we eat, this palm tree that the people of Papua New Guinea have found a way to to do to extract the edible parts of it and eat them through this long, complex process. People think that's so complicated that that must be what made us smart. But of course, it's not really complicated if you realize that once you move into a new environment and then eventually learn those rules, they're unchanging. You make the kayak the same way your father did, the same way his father did for 100 generations. And so you don't actually need brains to do that. You need to be somewhat smart. But what you really need brain power for is navigating each other. And then, of course, if the best possible scenario is if I can plant my ideas in your head, if I can get you to see the world the way that I do, well, then you're going to start pursuing things that benefit me. Your goals and my goals will be shared. And now I'm really going to be in a good position. So we became persuasion machines. That's what made us so smart is our ability and our desire to plant our ideas in the minds of other members of our group and then go off and be effective in executing those ideas. Uh, after this uh homo socialis uh, dimension. The second uh, key dimension is what you call homo innovatio. So uh, again, could you explain this concept? Yeah, so this one is kind of, uh, it's a paradox or it's ironic, or I'm not quite sure what term to use with it. But the notion is that if you look at all other animals on this planet and you think about their defining features, well, those defining features are shared by every member of their species. So what's a defining feature of an elephant? Huge and strong. Every single elephant on this planet is huge and strong. Easy. But if you think about the defining feature of humans, what made us the success story that we are today, it's clearly innovation. Here you and I are in our climate-controlled homes, having a conversation thousands of miles apart, comfortably and easily. No other animal can approximate that. And yet, the irony here, or the paradox here, is that most humans never invent anything. I don't know how my computer works. I don't know how the internet works. I don't know how any of these things work, but I benefit from them. And so then you ask yourself, okay, well, maybe humans are not very innovative, but only a couple of us are. And then the rest of us are smart enough to go, ooh, I want one of those. I'll have an iPhone. I'll take a laptop, you know, because those are great inventions from somebody else. And lots of people argue that that's the case, that really innovation is something that very few humans do and all of the humans simply need to recognize. But I don't think that's correct either. I think the correct answer is that all of us are innovative all the time. But rather interestingly, we direct our innovative efforts to our social um, interactions. And so our friends come to us with problems that are social problems, or we have a problem that we, it, it may not even be a social problem, maybe a physical problem. How do I get my suit? I, I've my suitcases are too large for me to carry, but I, I'm traveling for a long time and I need both of them. Well, I get a friend to go to the airport with me and help me carry them. I find a way to socially solve even a physical problem. And, and so the irony here, so to speak, is that if you look at inventiveness, it's the very few people who direct these their kind of innovative mind to non-social solutions. Most of us try to solve our problems socially because we're so socially connected. We like socializing. We, When I'm leaving town, I, I, you and I are buddies and, and I say, oh, could you come feed my dog? And you're like, it'd be my pleasure. And so you come feed my dog and it doesn't occur to me that I could maybe invent a dog feeder if I attach a spring to my you know, coffee grinder and, and link that up to my toaster. I could have dog food flop under the floor every day. But, it, but if I'm less social in nature, but equally innovative as everybody else, maybe then and only then do I try to innovate products. And that's what I think the data suggests, that people who are inventive tend to be somewhat on the spectrum, the autism spectrum, which makes them a little bit less social, a little bit less likely to be relying on their friends, and a little bit more oriented toward objects. 
So I think all humans are super inventive, but most of us just don't invent things. We invent new strategies, new ways of dealing with each other. And a few of us, well, we're very fortunate, are a little bit less social, and they're more inclined to invent things that we then all benefit from. Mm, that's uh, what you call social innovators. Um, at BVNH Consulting, we coach business and public policy leaders. So I am specifically very interested to hear from you about what you call elephants and baboons leaders. Yeah. So that's another implication of, of this whole evolutionary line of thinking, which is that, you know, if we look back to the savannah, we can now see that living on the ground and needing to cooperate made us much more collective and oriented toward the group, group oriented, trying to do the best thing for each other, because we all, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. We all work together in a very cooperative way that chimpanzees just don't. But we still have that old psychology, that chimp-like psychology in us, where we're looking out for ourselves first and foremost. And so the problem is that what that means is that we still have both those elements in it. The collectivism that we evolved on the savannah suppressed our individualism, but it didn't replace it or eliminate it. And what that means is that depending on the opportunities that are presented to us, sometimes I'm going to look out for number one. And so I find something that's really yummy and you and I are hunting together, but you're around the corner. And I say, hmm, Eric's not here. Eat it really fast. And then, I, oh, no, I know no berries on this bush, Eric. Let's keep going. And so you don't know that I've been selfish. Um, but other times we're going to want to look out for the collective. And so you've been my buddy for a long time and we've hunted together successfully. And I go around the corner and there's a big berry bush. I'm like, hey, Eric, come over here. I found something great. And then we both share it. And, and both of those tendencies are inside us. And so then the question becomes, well, when do we tend to be selfish and individualistic? And when do we tend to be collectivist? And when does this cause the most good and the most harm? And the answer to that question in my mind is that once we put humans in roles of leadership, now whatever they do can have a bigger benefit or a bigger cost because they, they can guide or influence the actions of their entire collective. And of course, leadership has the potential to bring out your selfish side because I can extract things from the group that I get to keep primarily for myself. I can get the group to do things that interest me the most, but maybe don't interest them very much. And so then the question is, well, what kind of people do that and what kind of circumstances thrust us to do that? And from my perspective, I'm interested in the role of inequality because in highly unequal situations or societies or organizations or whatever you might be looking at, now there's a lot more pressure on you to be what I call a baboon leader. And I call them baboon leaders because baboon leaders only look out for themselves. They're highly individualistic. They don't help their group. And so when, when the leader gets paid way more than the followers, when the leader gets a a lot of benefits when the leader when there's not enough to go around and the leader is the only one who can be assured that he or she has enough well that's when our baboon side is going to come out of we're going to try to look out for ourselves even at the cost to our group not all of us some are some people are just cooperative through and through but most of us in contrast if the group is relatively equal if the benefits aren't much greater for the leader than they are for everybody else well then whoever leads the group is really wants the group to succeed at all cost, you know, wants to do everything for the group and isn't going to try to benefit themselves the most. And so I call them elephant leaders because elephants are led by females who don't benefit much themselves, but provide the wisdom to know when they're under attack by lions, for example, and the wisdom to know where to find water um, if, if there's a drought, things like that. And so from my perspective, there's big differences in personality. Some people are going to be baboonish under most circumstances. Some will be elephantish. But separating that, the more inequality you create, the more you push all of us to become baboonish and to start looking out for ourselves instead of our group. And in my mind, that's just an immoral style of leadership because the leader should, should never put self-interest above group interest. It should always be group interest first, which then benefits the self only as a member of the group. But unfortunately, that's not that common, especially when you get to these big corporations where you can really benefit as the leader. Mm. So uh, the question is... Uh... What can be done to enhance moral leadership? Yeah, so the it's first of all, of course, you can try to diminish the inequality. And so the more an organization or a country or a group, it doesn't matter whatever you're talking about, a sport team, the more equality there is, the more the benefits are shared equally, the more you're going to push humans toward this elephant style of leadership. But of course... CEOs like to be paid a lot and it's hard to get them to give back half their money. And so it's not really a viable option for most organizations to simply pay them less. And then you can say, well, what other options are at my disposal? And probably the best one is to tie the CEOs or the leaders, whatever level of leader you have, to tie their fortunes to the long-term fortunes of the group as much as possible. 
And so if I'm the leader of our organization, then what determines my salary or my benefits or whatever should be, should be the whatever long-term indicators I have that my organization is moving in the right direction. And if you, if you make them just short-term, well, then I can try to do things that maximize profit today, but make everybody in the group in deep trouble tomorrow when I don't care anymore because I've already taken out my benefits. And so it's really tying performance to tying um, remuneration to long-term performance as well as you can. Now, there's other smaller things you can do. So, for example, hiring people from inside the organization gives you a better chance to know if you're dealing with somebody who tends to be elephanty or tends to be baboony. And so little things like that. But really, in the end, inequality, reducing inequality, and tying performance to long-term benefits are, are our best bet to make people more elephant-like in their leadership. Thanks a lot. I think it's very uh, helpful. Last part of your book is uh, maybe about uh, the key topic for all of us, happiness. So you start with what I consider as a bad news. Um, to quote you, evolution doesn't care if we are happy. Can you tell us why of this? <laughs> well, evolution doesn't care what our emotions are. It only cares how effective we are. So if, I, if by being unhappy, that would make me a more effective person. It would make me more likely to find a partner and successfully reproduce with that partner and successfully raise their kids. You can guarantee evolution would make us unhappy because that's the route to evolutionary success. And in the end, all that matters is were you a success? Did you leave behind lots of successful offspring? And if you did, then whatever proclivities you have, your tendency to be happy or unhappy, whatever it might be, is going to be carried on in those offspring and will slowly dominate the society because those are what make people successful. We're very fortunate that, way, that the way evolution works is that it uses happiness to motivate us to move toward things that are in our evolutionary interest, to motivate us towards survival and reproduction. And so as humans, we're also very fortunate that on average, being a little bit happy is a very good recipe for success. It's too bad. It's bad news, but being too happy is not a good recipe for success. If you look at the data, people were super happy. And then you wait 20 years, they make less money than other people. They're just less successful because they're so content. They're not very motivated. But on the other hand, people who are very unhappy, also have trouble at attracting others to their cause and being successful. So it turns out that being a little bit happy, moderately happy is the best thing. Now, what also turns out, though, is that Evolution doesn't want us to be able to become permanently happy because it's using happiness to motivate our success. And so if I achieve a goal that I think will make me permanently happy, if it was our ancestor killing a mastodon, if it's today winning the Nobel Prize, whatever you, you choose, whatever the goal is, and you think to yourself, gosh, if I did that, I would be happy forever. Well, no, you won't, because evolution needs to make sure that you kill another mastodon, because otherwise your group's going to get kind of tired of you. And so happiness is, is we've evolved for our happiness to be able to go very high when we succeed at what we're trying to do, but then to drop right back to where we were before. And so it's kind of a cruel trick that evolution plays on us, that it gives us this momentary experiences of great happiness, but it will never let us keep those. So uh, maybe last uh, uh, and very important uh, question, you suggest a wonderful list of 10 kind of recommendation to be uh, happy. And I would love that you share uh, each of these recommendations for our listener. Sure. So the, the key for me is to think back on our ancestral existence, to think back, well, what was it that made our ancestors a big success? And then it, the story is going to be the same today. And so you think about what, what you need to do, to, what you need to achieve is you need to be, um, you need to have groups that like you. And then you hopefully need to partner up with somebody who, um, will fall in love with you and that you can raise kids with over the long term. And so it is the case that things like sexual relations make us very happy. But if they're not long term sexual relations, that happiness dissipates in the same exact way that I was talking about before. Because, of course, that's not a great success uh, recipe for success in raising children to just have one off sexual relations and never see the person again. Because, of course, we human children, human babies are so hard to raise that it takes two parents to do it. And so what I would say is that what you want to do in order to be a success is that you want to do the kinds of things that long-term made our ancestors a success. And so what are those things? Well, um, and, and look, of course, these, these 10 steps, um, these 10 key things to happiness, you always have to think, well, how does that manifest for me? But what I would say is that um, 
Looking for long-term relationships is super important. And in fact, in my mind, that, that's probably the most important thing. And the reason that's the most important thing is when we look at all the things that can go right and wrong in your life, um, uh, you can be a, a success with, um, uh, you know, with people, you can be a business success, you can do all those things. But if you're only have fleeting friendships, it's you, your happiness comes right back to where it was before. And the single exception to that rule is if you look at long-term relationships, here's where we first, where we see for the first time that people can actually, we can track their happiness levels. So for example, we have these great data sets from Germany where they follow you for years and years before you even met your partner. And then they track, oh, now you met her and you got married. And then what happens? And we can see that people who, who form long-term, very happy married, married relationships, not only are they happier the year they got married than they were before they met their partner, but 10 years later, they're still happier than they were the, the year they met their partner. So it's the one exception to that rule I gave you, which is that you can't, um, uh, you can't, you know, your happiness comes right back to baseline. And so that, that's for me, the, probably the most important rule of all is trying to find somebody who would be a good long-term partner for you. Beyond that, I, I could, I could go through the list of the kinds of things that I think matter if you'd like. Would that be useful to you? Oh, maybe we could let our uh, listener buying and reading uh, the book. I like uh, that idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they have um, really a, a lot to, uh, to learn uh, from your uh, amazing uh, book. We are now close uh, to the end of our conversation, uh, uh, Bill. I'd like to end maybe by asking you a bit of about your future and any uh, uh, of your uh, new project? Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually right now trying to propose my next book. I'm very interested. I'm, I'm, I'm working with my agent to, where we're just finalizing a proposal to send to the publisher. Hopefully, HarperCollins will want to publish my next book as well. I really enjoyed working with them on the last one, so I'm keeping my fingers crossed. The, um, the, this next book is about autonomy and, related, and connection and looking at this sort of um, our need to to be ourselves and to be individuals, but also our need to connect to others and, and how these things can come into tension and what can lead to resolution of that tension and how people from different cultures and times and places come to different answers to that very fundamental question. So that's it's it's also an evolutionary psychology book, but it's looking at a very different kind of topic um, than the than the social leap does. So congrats, impassioned to uh, to read it. Um, thank you so much, uh, Bill, for joining us today. Is there Anything you would like to leave our listener with, uh, perhaps uh, where can they find out more about you and your work? So um, I'm most easily just Googled on the web. I mean, I have the advantage that my surname is very unusual. So there's only one William Von Hippel on this planet, and that's me. And so I'm very easily found. Um, the uh, uh, Most of it's my academic work, but of course, there's podcasts and things like this conversation with you. Um, I should have mentioned that I'm becoming much more interested in behavioral economics myself as well. And so if somebody does do this, they'll see that some of my more recent projects are collaborative efforts with um, economists uh, here in Australia, some in France, um, some scattered all over the globe to try to answer a lot of these same exact questions that, that of course, you're struggling with as well. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, Bill. It was really a, a pleasure to have this uh, conversation uh, with you. And I'm sure uh, our listener will love to hear from this conversation and more uh, to read uh, the book because there are so many uh, insights and so many learnings. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.